0: Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 and also pull out those message notes if you have them. In just a moment, we're going to be looking at this passage of scripture. So just keep your finger there, if you would, in Luke chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 33. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Lord, I'm asking this morning uh, this Sunday in February, that you'd help me uh, to make this message plain, simple, applicable to where we live in our lives. We need your grace, we need your help, we need your empowerment, as always, Lord. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. I, I read about a seminary professor. There was a seminary professor that had a student in his class. And uh, the student turned in a, a sermon assignment. He turned in a sermon assignment, and uh, and the professor looked at it, and he said, "You did a great job with your message, but your your title to your sermon is boring. It's boring. And I want you to redo your sermon title. It needs to be catchy, and it needs to be relevant." And so he was trying to help this young man do this. And the young man said, how do I do that? How do I prepare a catchy, relevant sermon title? Well, the professor said, this is what you need to do. It's easy. Just imagine that you have a church, and, uh, and there's a marquee out in front of the church, and there is a bus that pulls up with a load of people temporarily in front of your church. You want that sermon title to be so catchy, so eye-popping and so attention-getting that all those people on that bus will jump off the bus and come running in to the church. So I want you to take it home and I want you to redo it. The next day, this young man came back and he created a new sermon title. It read... There's a bomb on your bus. (laughs) I think that's funny myself. Uh, You know, it's true. There are bombs going off everywhere. You think about it, there are bombs going off everywhere. We've got all those Middle East situations and rumors of wars and wars occurring and happening all around the world. We still are in a scary, scary job market. They say that our economy is recovering, but we've gone through a terrible, terrible period here. Did you know that technological advances are mind-boggling? I read in the bin bulletin that hydrogen, hydrogen cars are just around the corner. Hydrogen cars, cars running on hydrogen, just around the corner. And did you know that, however, as much as we have these technological advances, unfortunately, it seems to be that our culture is moving a step back or two toward paganism and hedonism. Sin is very, very rampant in our culture and our world today. Last week, we looked at this rich young ruler that by the world standards was squeaky clean. Remember, we said that he um, was enthusiastic. He was organized. He was a successful business person. He was rich. He was morally clean by, as far as uh, the keeping of the ten commandments he was squeaky clean but jesus knew that he had a problem jesus knew that he had an idol in his life and that idol was covetousness and so jesus after he asked the question this young man asked jesus how do i inherit eternal life and this young man went through all of these things that all these qualities said i'm a good person i'm a good person and jesus said no one is good but god he finally said sell everything that you have and give it to the poor And the scripture said this young man walked away sadly because he owned a lot and he could not do that. His idol in his life was money. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee idolatry. The context tells us idolatry in every single form. Now, most of us, when we think of idolatry, we think of the Old Testament idea of these graven images and these people bowing down to stone, wood, or metal. But we know that an idol is anything that can take the place of God in our lives first place. Idolatry can take many forms, and Jesus talks about three specific ways in which Idols can take over our life in this particular passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Let me set the scene this morning. Some people, some people really believe that Jesus Christ tried to draw crowds intentionally to himself. They really believe that Jesus just tried to draw crowds because the Scripture says that wherever he went, huge crowds followed jesus it 's true that he did quite frequently during his earthly ministry, his three plus years uh, did draw huge crowds, but he never did that intentionally in fact, more than once, he deliberately addressed certain issues that kind of thinned the crowds out. You might want to say on one occasion, for example. He pressed his point so strongly with his fervor and with his passion and Holy Spirit conviction that many of his listeners walked away. For example, in John 6, verses 60 and 66, we read, Many, therefore, of his followers, after Jesus said that his body was given for sinners and that his blood was shed and was the only way to to inherit eternal life, the atonement for sins... We read in Scripture that many of his disciples said, many of his followers said, this is a difficult statement and teaching. Who can listen to it? And walked away. Uh, On another occasion, right here in this particular passage of Scripture, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus did a very, very similar thing. Both times, it was wholesale full commitment that he was talking about that seemed to thin the ranks. I want you to look at this second encounter, And Dr. Luke sets the stage in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Notice with me. Now great multitudes were going along with him. Again, it's a large group. It's a large movement of of people. And they were curious. And uh, he had created an interest among the public, among the individuals. Scripture indicates that they came from all of these uh, podunk villages. They came out to hear Jesus and And uh, they came out, you might want to say, as tire kickers. You ever heard of the term tire kickers? Somebody that just wants to kick the tires, but they're not really interested in buying the car. Fans, but not followers. And so a bunch of tire kickers came out. They wanted to see some miracles. They wanted to see a little pizzazz. They wanted to gawk. And realizing this, he found himself unable to overlook the situation. One more second, and therefore, he says in chapter 14, look at it with me, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even me, his own life, not me, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Our suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while others are still a long way off and will ask them for terms of peace. Notice verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Here is a large group of people, a large group of people, a a gigantic crowd, again, you might want to say, of tire kickers, fans, but not followers. And it was this particular situation that prompted Jesus to look straight into their eyes and confront them with their lack of commitment. In fact, did you read with me? Did you hear that? He says, you cannot be my followers. You cannot be my disciples. You cannot be my disciples. He says that three specific times. You cannot be my disciples or or followers. Now, we're, we're talking straight here we're talking straight here this is Jesus speaking these are his words you cannot be my disciples if and he gives three examples of that first he's talking about competing relationships Competing relationships and loyalties. Again, in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Now, when Jesus is talking about hating a father or mother or brother and sister, he is not saying that we are to be crude and hateful, He's not suggesting that we be malicious, that we be harmful, that we can't love these people, and that we can't have compassion on them. Did you know that often Jesus in his teaching used what we call hyperbole? That means exaggeration. He would make an exaggerated point to get people's attention. For example, Jesus in his earthly ministry said, If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. He did not mean that literally. But he's making a point here. And right here he's saying this. He's emphasizing the very real possibility of competition in our loyalty between himself and those we love dearly. Can there be competition? between himself and those we love dearly? And the answer is yes. Years ago, we had a young lady that grew up in our church. She came in junior high all the way through high school, went away, uh, met a young man that went to another church. They came to me, called me up. I said, let's meet together because they wanted to get married. We sat down. I said, uh, you know, we need to meet three or four times. I want you to have a happy, successful marriage. We talked about some of those basic ingredients. And then I got to the last part. And I said, you know, Scripture says that you're not supposed to have any uh, sexual relationship or uh, extra, you know, hanky-panky, whatever you want to say and uh i i um i never assume i mean you know i i just wh- whoever it is i say the same thing and this is a scriptural guideline and if you're involved in premarital intimacies you're not to do that and this is what the bible says and this is what god's word says that young man who would grow up in another church my paraphrase he stood up and he threw up his hands and he said nobody's going to tell me what to do I'm going to do what I want to do. And if I want to have sex with my girlfriend, I can have sex with my girlfriend. And he stormed out of the room. And uh, I looked at this young lady who I knew very well. And she was crying. And she was upset. And uh, I said to her, I said, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. But I want to advise you here that I wouldn't marry this person if I were you until he changes his attitude. He loved his self and loved what he wanted to get from her more than he really loved God. Competing loyalties, competing relationships. I've had other people, other couples, that will come in and I'll explain what the Scripture says and Scriptural guidelines, and they're committed Christian individuals, and they say to me, we can do that. We're willing to do that. Who is first in your life? Is there any competing loyalty? And Jesus said, I am to be the preeminent person, in your life you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father unless you realize that you need to put me first here in your life who do we love more is he the lord of our relationships first place no competing loyalties jesus said you cannot be my disciple again unless i'm first place in your relationship the second thing that jesus talks about here he said you cannot be my disciples if you have Competing dreams and desires and goals and aspirations. If you have competing dreams and goals and aspirations, look at what he said in verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here in the words of Jesus, they seemingly go a little bit deeper as it refers to surrendering our dreams, our goals, our desires. Are you saying, Pastor Ron, that you cannot have goals, you cannot have dreams, you cannot have desires? I'm not saying that. But when we dream and we write those goals and we write those desires down, we always say, Lord, whatever your will is, Not my will, but your will be done. How many times, myself included, have you heard people call to full-time ministry, to to the missions, and they initially said, no way, Jose, I'm not going to do it. It's not my will, but your will be done. And there are often competing Loyalties. And Jesus said, You cannot be my disciple unless you do what I ask you to do. And if He is preeminent, and if He is the Lord, and if He is who He says He is, and if He did what He said He did, then He has a right to ask that of us. If He died on the cross for our sins, if He resurrected again, if He is who He says He is, if He is the Lord, then He has a right to ask that of us. You see, many people say, I want heaven. I want Jesus, I want to be a fan of Jesus, but I don't want to be a follower. I don't want to be a disciple. I don't want to do what he wants me to do. I want to do what I want to do. And this is not what scripture teaches, and this is not what Jesus is saying here. He goes a little bit deeper. In fact, did you know that he uses that term, take up the cross? Did you see that? He says, take up the cross. In the first century, if if anyone was seen carrying the cross, it was clear to everyone that he or she was on their way to die. They were on their way to die. Jesus is using that word picture to describe dying to our personal pursuits and dreams and aspirations. And instead of saying, my will, saying, Lord, your will be done. Now, Jesus not only taught this in his earthly ministry, but he demonstrated this. You guys remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was agonizing in prayer. And the reason why he was agonizing in prayer is because he knew what he had to face. He had to face that terrible, horrible uh, pain uh, that he had to experience when they made him carry the cross. When they put those crowns of one and one inch, quarter inch thorns on the top of his head, ripping his scalp like it ripped through a a, a chainsaw, ripped through a log. He knew that he was going to be beaten. He knew he was going to be mocked. He knew he was going to be hung on the cross. He knew the pain and he knew the agony. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Lord, let this cup pass. And then sweating drops of blood, he said, not my will but your will be done how many times have i as a christian person said lord that's too much that's too costly i don't want to do what you want me to do because it's too much of a cost i have a hard time at times loving people that are difficult and yet the lord tells me i have to love everybody even difficult people As a minister of the gospel and as a Christian person, I have to do it. I'm compelled to do things that I don't want to do. Do you think that I always want to be a squeaky clean, uh, goody two-shoes, so to speak? Do you think that I always want to be ethical and honest? Sometimes I'd rather be dishonest. But because of my, I'm trying to endeavor to follow Christ, I want to do it. I don't always feel like I want to love my wife and uh, do the things that I know that I should do. And after I blow it, I say, please forgive me, God. Help me to do the things that you want me to do. Your will, not my will. And I, I have to ask forgiveness. And there's always this pride thing that I have to battle down. And I just, it, it, I have to say, not my will, but Your will be done. Now, this is this is so so difficult at times. I, I I see this difficulty so much in today's world, especially when you consider a person's time and talents. And we ask ourselves, well, how much time and what kind of talents? Are we really taking time for personal and corporate worship? Do we really take time for for personal and corporate worship? Is that really a high priority in our life, or is it kind of one of those things that, you know, if I if I if I if if I don't have anything else to do, then I'll be involved. In corporate worship. In my hobbies and in my interests and in my fishing or or my kids sports or my jobs or my home repair, if I don't have anything else, then I'll put a high priority on individual and corporate worship. I'm just really concerned about this particular subject because I've seen a dear deterioration quite frankly of people making corporate worship our priority in their lives. I got a funny story to tell you, at least it's funny to me. Years ago, I had this uh, fellow pastor and we were at a district zone meeting. That's when, that's when a number of pastors get together in a certain area and the district superintendent was there and we were having lunch together. And the district superintendent was trying to promote and push district layman's retreat, which was always a weekend in the fall and it was on a Saturday and it was on a Sunday. And uh, I stood up and and I testified, you know, we've had more spiritual victories at that layman's retreat than any other thing. It's a wonderful thing. And I was promoting it with zeal. And this fellow pastor pastor a little bit of a larger church than I did, he stood up and he was red in the face and his veins were popping out and he said, I read a statistic recently and the average Christian misses nine Sundays a year. And this was back in 1999. And I kind of sloughed it off a little bit. I kind of laughed about it. I thought, man, this guy's a crackpot. You know, this guy's just one of those guys. Did you know, am I still on? Did you know that I read a statistic the average Christian across cross denominational lines today attends church 1.8? I don't know how they get the 1.8, but less than two Sundays a month. Think about it. Less than two Sundays a month on the average. Now, I understand that we have jobs on Sundays, I understand that we take vacations. I understand that there are kids and activities. But imagine that. 26 plus Sundays a year on the average. The average person is missing church, and they're missing out on corporate worship. They're missing out on the preaching of God's Word. They're missing out on spiritual renewal. They're missing out on revival. They're missing out, and they're wondering why they feel so cold, and why they feel so distant, and why, they, why what's happening in their spiritual life. Can you imagine how in the world can you fulfill the Great Commandment and the Great Commission if half the people in the churches across America only come to church on an average of less than two Sundays a month, and they're supposed to experience spiritual renewal and spiritual revival? How in the world can they expect to fulfill the Great Commandment and the Great Commission reaching for people for Jesus? You just can't do it. And so, so I ask the question of you. And you ask the question to me, is there anything wrong with missing church? I'm saying there's nothing wrong with missing church, but it seems to me that we have to ask ourselves, how much is enough? <laughs> how much? How much? How much? How much? One of these days, we're going to have to wake up to the fact that enough's enough. And I'm not legalistic enough to say how much that is for you. But I'll tell you, I hope you don't end up like Howard Rutledge. I want you to listen to this story. Howard Rutledge, a United States Air Force pilot, was shot down over North Vietnam during the early stages of the war. He spent several miserable years in the hands of his captors before being released at the war's conclusion. In his book, In the Presence of My Enemies, he reflects upon the resources from which he drew in those arduous days when life seemed so intolerable. And this is what he writes. He's in this POW camp. He's in this heartbreak hotel that we've heard so much about in Vietnam. And this is what he writes about those long, long days. During those longer periods of enforced reflection, it became much more easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. For example, in the past, I usually worked or played hard on Sundays and had no time for corporate worship or church. For years, Phyllis had encouraged me to join the family church. She nagged, she scolded, she kept hoping But I was too busy, I was too preoccupied to spend one or two short hours a week thinking about the really important things. Now, he writes, the sights and sounds and smells of death were all around me. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for for a steak. Now I wanted to know the part of me that will never die. Now I wanted to talk about God. I wanted to talk about Christ. I wanted to talk about the church. But in Heartbreak Hotel... The name the POWs gave their prison camp. Solitary confinement. There was no pastor, no Sunday school teacher, no Bible, no handbook, no community of believers to guide and sustain me. I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life and it took prison to show me how empty my life is without God. We're talking about time and talents. Not my will but your will be done. Now, we're not going to wake up in a prisoner of war camp, I don't think. But in, but perhaps we might find ourselves in a situation where we cannot be in corporate worship to realize what we missed out on. Somebody jokingly said to me, they said, Pastor Ron, I can't even remember what you preached two Sundays ago. And I jokingly said back to them, I said, can you remember what you ate for breakfast or dinner two days ago, much less two weeks ago. But you still ate, you still got nutrition, and you still got fed. And without it, you would starve yourself to death. You need individual and corporate worship, and so do I. And I would hope, I would hope, that if I was a layperson, I would understand what I'm talking about this morning. Not in a legalistic way, not in a prescriptive way. Each of us have to ask ourselves, what is how much, how much can I afford? How much can I afford? If he's the Lord of my life, isn't he the Lord of my time and talents? The third thing that Jesus talks about here is the importance, the real uh, competition of money and possessions. I want you to look at uh, chapter 14, verse 33. Look at it with me one more time. So therefore, none of you can be my disciples if you do not give up, All of his own possessions. Now, isn't that interesting? Man, Jesus Christ, he's going for the juggler vein. You know, I'm talking about time, and we're not only talking about talents, but he's also talking about treasures here. All of your, and notice that word all. What does all mean? All. All of your possessions, unless you give up all of your possessions. All. It's incredible. He goes to the extreme, all of your possessions. But wait just a minute. According to the Bible, according to the Bible, God is the owner of everything, of our brawn, of our brains. He's the owner of our uh, bank accounts. He's the owner of our homes. He's the owner of our cars. He is the owner of everything. He's He's the Lord. He's over everything. And did you know the Bible says that as Lord of everything, he is already the Lord of everything, and he says, I want you to be a manager. I want you to be a steward of everything that I've given you. You just remember, I own it, and you manage it. And there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with possessions. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. Listen, just as long as these things and the money doesn't own us. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says the root of all evil is money. No, it says the root of all evil is the love of money. And did you know that this can be a God in a person's life? It really can be. Notice in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, another reference, another verse. I think it's on the overhead. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and what? God and money, God and mammon. Have you ever tried to work for two bosses? I, 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 as many, many of you know, I was a, uh, a bivocational pastor. And uh, when we first came back uh, to the place where we had pastored, the church had almost disbanded, a handful of people. And so I had to, I had to uh, pursue carpentry. It was a hobby, it was an interest. I went to school for six months at Delta Community College in California, and then I got hired by uh, this contractor, and he had a head carpenter, and he introduced me to head carpenter. He said, "This guy's your boss." Well, the contractor would show up every once in a while. He was my boss too and one particular occasion it didn't happen that much but you know i made up my mind i was going to do i was going to submit myself to their authority i was going to be the best carpenter they could be i was i was going to do exactly what they told me to do as long as it was within you know ethics and and uh, I, I so i i had a good attitude i was submitting myself to their authority etcetera et cetera. but one particular day the head carpenter said i want you to go over here i want you to do this Well, the contractor, the owner of the company, showed up and he said, I want you to go over here and do this. And I found myself biting my lip. I I just wanted so much, to just blurted out there, I can't serve two bosses. You want me to do this, and you want me to do this? You're driving me crazy. You're going to give me ulcers. You're going to give me a stomachache. I can't believe what's going on here. You tell me what to do, and you tell me what to do. Oh, and I had to walk away. And uh, the guy, the owner of the company said, well, what's wrong? I said, well, he told me to do something, and he told me something else. you cannot serve two bosses. You can't serve two masters. If you try to do that, you'll get an ulcer. You get it every single time. Now, you have to make up your mind who you're going to serve. Jesus said, "You're going to serve me. You're going to serve God. You're going to serve. Are you going to, or you're going to serve money and possessions?" Jesus Christ lays it out. I, I must choose who I love the most. It's a choice. You you cannot serve two masters. He says. Now, I didn't say this. You see it, don't you? Jesus says this. It's red letter. I don't say this. Jesus says this. Am I going to choose God or am I going to choose money? Again, the Bible says money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. And often, quite frankly, in today's world, we get in a vicious cycle. You know what the vicious cycle is? It's materialism. It's the advertisers. It's giving in to those things. We need a, new, we need a car, so I'm going to buy a brand new car, but I don't have the money to finance it. I don't have the cash, so I have to finance it. And because you've got a new car, now I need a new truck, the spouse says. So I've got to have a brand new truck, so I've got to finance that. And of course, we can't live in a still. Uh, we can't live in a manufactured home. We've got to have a stick-built house. And so, uh, we go out and mortgage that. And and we need furniture to fill up this new nice house. And on top of that, um, Billy wants to play these sports and he's got these expenses over here so we've got to spend money on that and 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 then we've got to do this over here because we we also need the motorcycle and we need the a our uh the all-terrain vehicles and we need the the campers and and we need all this stuff and pretty soon what happens is is that now you've got both people working full-time and then you have both people working overtime just to make the ends meet and you know what i'm talking about Barely able to make it financially, much less. We're not even talking about giving to the Lord's work. I don't have any money left I don't have any money left over to even go to Taco Bell and buy a ninety-nine cent taco. And who is gonna be first? Jesus said it's a choice. God our money, you say, Pastor Ron, how do you know God is really first place in your life as far as your finances are concerned? There's one scripture in the Bible, there's many more, but there's one that just stands out so distinctly. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23. Look at it with me, notice what it says the purpose of what. The purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. And that's the only antidote I know to materialism and to greed is to put God first by, be, by starting to give a tithe and being generous with other people. That's the only antidote I know to what we call materialism and making sure that God's first Placed in your finances. Are you saying that you you, that if you tithe, you cannot be a greedy person? I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's an antidote. It's an antidote to it as we submit ourselves to this to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I just got to tell you, I've heard all the arguments. I've heard all of them. It's Old Testament. No, it's not. Jesus talked about tithing. It's under the law. No, it's not. It's not just the law. Adam and Eve and their kids, they tithe. In fact, it's a place to start. It's just a place to start. And yet, you don't know how many people say, I can't afford to tithe. And you know what my response is? You can't afford not to. Did you hear what I said? You can't afford not to. Because we read in Malachi that when you put God first in your finances, that the Lord opens the windows of heaven. Literally opens the windows of heaven. Are you saying that when you give a dollar, God's going to give you $100 back? I'm not saying that. I'm not the health, wealth, and prosperity guy. I just know that it's worked in our life. Kathy and I, when we first got married, we made two commitments. Number one, that we would tithe. We would give a 10% of all of our income to the Lord. And that would be the first before we paid any of our bills. That means if we make $100, we give $10 to God. If we make $1,000, we give $100 to God. And we've done that. Now, I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy. But I've been blessed. I've been blessed. At first, when I answered the call of mystery, I thought, man, I'll have to live on beans and potatoes the rest of my life. I'll have to drive an old junker. I'll have to live in a tent someplace. It's been tight at times. But God's always provided our needs and sometimes our wants. You say, Pastor Ron, the Lord's blessed me, and I don't tithe. Imagine the blessings if you put God first in your finances. Imagine. It says, windows of heaven will be open. Did you know, I'm going to stop soon, uh, but I I just have to let you know, because this is just so exciting to me, and I want to preach it a message strictly on Malachi. But did you know in that particular passage of Scripture, when God says, trust me in this, that's the only passage in the Bible where God says specifically, trust me, trust me. And see if I won't open the windows of heaven to you. Why? Because he knew how difficult it was for some of us to do this. In fact, every single church I pastored, now, Sue, you may not like this. She's our church treasurer. But every single church i pastored, I've challenged our people. You know what I've said? i said, if you trust the Lord and do what Scripture says, and if you begin to tithe, and in one year period, after a year, after a year of tithing, and you don't see that God has blessed you, we'll write a check back to you. We'll write a check back to you. And I haven't had one person, not one person take me up on that offer that seriously committed their finances to God and put Him first. Not one. You can't afford not to. Let's pray together. As we close in this moment, why don't you ask God what he wants to talk to you about? Maybe it has nothing nothing to do with these subjects. Maybe, maybe he's not the Lord of other areas that I didn't even talk about. And I'm going to ask myself some tough questions this morning. If you want to listen in, you're free to listen in. And you might even want to ask these questions of yourself. Here's the question I ask myself all the time. Does God really have first place in my life, or is it just lip service? Does God really have first place in my life? Does He have first place in my time in my talents and in my treasures? He deserves it, and i 'm the one who loses out if he 's not first place. Can I prove it? Do my finances reveal that that statement is true? Do my time does that do my does my time reveal that that's true? Do the use of my talents reveal that that's true? Can I be trusted with what God has allowed me to have? Is he the owner, and do I understand that I'm the steward? Do I pass God's test for spiritual blessings? Now, who's going to be in heaven because of me? You see, when we talk about giving to the Lord's work, we're talking about investing in people that are going to go to heaven. You're not investing in some sort of organization. You're not investing in some sort of nonprofit. You're investing... For eternity in people's lives, they're going to be in heaven. Now, I'll be honest with you. Please, while every head's bowed, God has spoken to me through this message about some wrong priorities in my own life. And I think He's spoken to some of you too. For those of us He's spoken to this morning, the real issue comes down to what are we going to do about it? If you haven't been tithing, why don't you say this? It's up to you. But I invite you to pray a simple prayer. Father, by faith, I'm going to start tithing 10% today. By faith. Take a gulp and make the biggest step of faith you've ever made since you were a believer. I dare you. God says, I dare you in Malachi 3. Say, I'm going to start tithing today. Why? Why? Because God needs the money? No, He doesn't need the money. It's because we need to give to remind us that He's first place. To break this grip of materialism, to remind us that where we all came from, to remind us that if it weren't for His blessings, we wouldn't be even able to work tomorrow. Others of us, maybe the Lord would say, go beyond the minimum. We've been stuck at that level 10% so long. I want to increase my giving and grow. Now, I realize that some of you are visitors this morning. Some of you may not even know the Lord and never commit your life to Christ. And maybe in the back of your mind, you're thinking, yeah, just as I thought, the church always wants my money. If you feel that way, you've totally misunderstood what the Bible says about this subject. This is not some fundraising sermon. I don't care what you give. If you feel like this is a pitch, I'd say don't give. Don't give. Go find some other ministry or some other church, but start giving somewhere where you can invest in eternity. God does not need your money. He wants what it represents. He wants you. He wants your money. He wants your time. He wants your talents. The Bible says Jesus Christ came to earth to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to forgive everything you've ever done wrong, to give you a new life. He has done so much he wants to give you, but first you must make him. Not only your Savior, but your Lord. That's the starting point. Lord Jesus, I'm asking that you would take these words, you would use them, you would use them. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you called us. You called us to be your followers, not just your fans. For it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stephen has a special at this time for our offertory. If I could please have our ushers come forward. Lord, bless this offering and thank you for it. In Christ's name again we pray. Amen.